seated. We continue with our liturgy of the Word, our service of the Word, by recognizing our children's presence with us. And tonight, I see a few folks. I see Titus and Sophie, and really any number of the Haynes kids who want to pitch in, but uh, it's your choice. All right, uh, Titus and Sophie, be ready for your part. You remember your part? Very good. Okay. Titus and Sophie, the Lord be with you as you worship. All right, thank you guys. Let's pray as we continue. Lord Christ, we thank you that you are more ready to respond to our call than we are to ask. We thank you that you are faithful. We want to, to attach ourselves to you tonight, to hear from you. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would illuminate the text for us, would illuminate also our lives, and especially those places in our lives where we are most confused, are most hurting, are most distant from you and from others. We pray that you, uh, your Spirit would empower us to be the kinds of people who not only hear your word, but who are also able to walk and to live in light of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ the King, we live in a world that is hungry for attention. We live in a a look-at-me world. We live in a look-at-me world. A world that is hungry for attention, that is longing to be seen. Longing for significance. Getting Instagram likes is not a new problem. Right? Uh, The world in which uh, we can obsess over that kind of thing, it's not a new kind of world. It's just a new way uh, to have met a really deep longing in our hearts, and that is the longing for significance, the longing to be seen, longing for attention. And although this longing that we have to be seen, this longing that we have for significance, although it gets expressed a lot in, in sort of self-glorifying, egocentric kind of ways, we can recognize that most of us come by this honestly. Right? That this is actually just a basic human longing. This is a basic human longing. I've seen this uh, recently, this human longing, um, in sort of in two different ways, in two different kinds of signs. Uh, the first, uh, where I saw it pictured recently, was I was watching, I've been watching the World Series. Um, I don't uh, end up watching a lot of baseball during the year, but I do watch the World Series. Uh, and the World Series, of course, is, like, captures this, uh, this moment in our culture um, this moment of like the sports industrial complex. Maybe most of you don't refer to it as the sports industrial complex. 
<laughs> Maybe it's just sports to you. Um, but it is this moment of like this sports industrial complex where like where fame and celebrity and money and power and like all of that just come colliding together. This like winning at all costs. And of course, in baseball, we've even seen over the over the years ways that people have gone to the extreme and cheated and done all this stuff to win at all costs. And of course, you've got this these rivalries in baseball and. Um, that, that are, are sometimes very infamous, these rivalries, people who are ready to cut each other's throats, who need to win at all costs. It's all money, power, fame, celebrity, look at me. So in this world, this uh, World Series, there was this moment uh, last night where um, it was almost this holy kind of, uh, some might say, a liturgical moment. When before the game started, everybody stopped. And they, uh, they, they, everyone had signs uh, for this campaign, this um, Stand Up Against Cancer, I think is the name of the campaign. Stand Up to Cancer. Um, and so everyone, uh, what they did is everyone in the stadium, players, um, fans, coaches, they all had these little signs uh, that they held up that they had someone's name uh, written on the sign uh, who was affected by cancer. And so everyone stood up. It was this silence. In this solidarity. And in this moment, this, there's a strange revealing in the midst of the World Series uh, of this expression of this longing to be seen. You could tell like how proud people were. The players, the fans, to like hold up the sign so that the world, however many millions of people could see, could not only just see them, but see those who have been hurting and suffering. This longing to be seen. And then, of course, they said play ball, and then the antagonism just (laughs) continued all over again. It's also election season, which I'm sure most of you guys are aware. In an election season, signs start to pop up all over the place, on the corners um, of roads and on fences and in the places where we will all see them. And in this election season, there are these signs where candidates uh, compete for attention. And as I was driving around the other day and seeing all these signs, uh, maybe this is not how you think about it. Maybe this is not like the way that, that the election stuff actually works. But in my mind, I had this thought of like the biggest sign wins. <laughs> right? Because it's like you pull up to a, a four-way stop, and they've got all these signs, like dozens of signs everywhere. And it's like, how is your sign going to be seen? Well, you get the biggest sign. They should think about this, right? Like, why, how do we get the biggest sign? The biggest sign wins. The assumption is that we change the world by joining the hype. We change the world first by garnering significance and recognition. We live in a world that fears being overlooked, left out, not seen. Do any of you tonight fear being overlooked, left out, or not seen? We might think, if I am not seen, if I am not noticed... If I, people don't see me and I get significance that way, how can my life have meaning? If I am not seen, how can my life have meaning? How can I understand who I am if I'm not able to be seen? 
How can I make a difference if I'm not garnering recognition and attention and significance? The bad news is that this fear of being overlooked, of being left out, of being not seen, makes us anxious and insecure. Can any of you relate to living out of that anxiety and that fear in the different places of your life, of the need to be seen, to be not left out? And in this, in this bad news, this anxiety, this insecurity, we end up anxiously pursuing counterfeit significance counterfeit significance. These things, uh, these methods, these techniques that we use in order to be seen, to to garner significance and attention by others um, that seem like that they're going to bring us significance, but they don't actually bring us significance. They just keep us locked in this uh, cycle of needing to be seen, of needing more likes or whatever. Counterfeit significance. And I uh, I should just own up to the fact that this functions in my life in some really insidious ways. I confess that, uh, that sometimes uh, I get caught up in, in this anxiety, this insecurity, um, in my relationship with other pastors. Um, it should not go without noting that uh, this world of anxiety and insecurity about needing to be seen and gaining significance and importance and making a difference because that's how you do it very much is alive and well among people like me. And so I see, even this week, I've seen these, these little ways where I'll notice, like, uh, some, some pastor friend of mine doing something important and getting recognition for that and thinking to myself, like, like I deserve that. And then I start to freak out a little. How am I going to make a difference if I don't have that kind of attention, that ty- ty- type of significance? Can you relate to this? Or maybe, maybe it's not just that you can, you can see how you're personally um, uh, pulled into this vortex, but maybe you feel caught in someone else's battle for significance. Maybe you have experienced pain or, or just frustration from those wielding power over you and who are doing so by trying to make a name for themselves. And so you feel stuck in this place of like, why do I have to suffer this stuff? Why do I have to walk through this? Because I see these people are making these decisions and all they want is to to get glory for themselves. Maybe you feel stuck, caught in someone else's battle for significance. And maybe you've noticed that when you try to get out of that, when you try to move out of someone else's battle for significance, you end up reduplicating the same vicious cycles you end up fighting for significance over others. You, in, in fear and anxiety, buying into the lie that comes with counterfeit significance, that if someone else is getting significance and attention and being seen, then, then I must not be, and I must compete and take it from others. Christ the King, the good news that we proclaim today is that Jesus is making another way. Jesus is deconstructing this world of counterfeit significance. And he's making another way. He has made another way. Christ the King, the good news is that Christ does not come hungry for attention or desperate for glory. Christ has not come among us hungry for attention or desperate for glory. Rather, we see that in communion with the Father, Christ comes joining humanity in the dust. 
in communion, living out of communion with the Father, Christ has come joining humanity in the dust, freely offering his life to bring healing and new life to others. We don't need counterfeit significance to be seen, to be known, to be loved. We don't need counterfeit significance to make a difference. Christ sees us in the dust. Christ sees you in the dust. And Christ calls us out of our fear. He sees us and calls us out of our fear of insignificance. And now we are freed. We are freed to cry out, Son of God, have mercy on me. We are freed to cry out, have mercy on us. And we are freed for seeing differently with kingdom eyes. In Mark chapter 10, we've been journeying through kind of uh, in the gospel readings this, this, uh, this lead up to the cross. Jesus is on his way to the cross. Jesus is fulfilling his mission to bring salvation to the world. He's going to the cross, and it seems like that as he's going to the cross, that the people around him can't quite wrap their heads around that to attach their lives to his. To become disciples of Jesus means that they too are going to take that journey with Jesus to the cross. That there's something irreducible about that very journey of the journey to the cross to the way that God is saving the world and how he's inviting us to join in his salvation in the world. And so in Mark chapter 10, we see that Jesus joins humanity in the dust. Jesus joins humanity in the dust. Jesus doesn't need to be seen. Jesus doesn't need to be seen. Jesus doesn't need to win on the world's terms. Jesus is not anxious or insecure. Jesus is fully seen, fully known, fully loved by the Father. Jesus is walking in communion with the Father. And it's from this reality... This confidence and the fact that, that Jesus knows that he is seen by the Father. We saw this at Jesus' baptism at the very beginning of the Gospels. That he is known and beloved and seen by the Father. It's from this reality that Jesus joins humanity in the dust. It's from this reality of being fully known and loved by the Father that Jesus is able to resist those temptations that Satan is inviting him into that we saw earlier in Mark's, chapter, in, in, in Mark's gospel where, where Satan tries to distract Jesus from the cross by, by tempting him with, with provision, with money, with power, and with popularity to invite him on a different mission than the mission of downward mobility to the cross that we've seen him on. Jesus resists that, continues to resist that, and we see that Jesus joins humanity in the dust. And as Jesus joins humanity in the dust, we see that the gospel is good news for people like our main character, Bartimaeus. That the gospel is good news for people like our main character, Bartimaeus. I'm just going to call him Bart from now on. It's just easier to come out. We see that Bart is poor. In fact, Bart um, is disabled and poor. Bartimaeus exists on the margins of society. Literally, he's sitting outside the gates of Jericho in the dust, um, fully dependent 
on others uh, for, for food, um, for protection, um, fully dependent on others, even know how to, to how to go somewhere because he can't see. Bartimaeus is in the dust. In this story uh, of Bartimaeus, um, we, there's this contrast. This story exists in contrast to the several stories that have come before this. Uh, the rich young ruler, right, who comes to Jesus and asks what he must do in order to inherit eternal life. And when Jesus invites the rich young ruler on the mission of downward mobility, he walks away sad. We also see that James and John come to Jesus and they ask Jesus actually a similar question that Bartimaeus asks. Um, we want you to do something for us. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Which is the same question that he asked Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? But we see that uh, James and John, they want to, to sit in seats of significance, right? They think that this is what it looks like in order to make a difference in the world. They think that this is what it looks like in order to secure an identity for themselves so that they can be seen and known and commune with, with God and with others. So they want to seat, sit in seats of significance, but we see that Bartimaeus sits in the dust. You see that contrast here. Bartimaeus sits in the dust. He is fully attuned to his creaturely dependence not just on God in some sort of spiritual abstract sense, but like actually dependent. But the gospel is good news for people like Bartimaeus. The interaction that Jesus has with Bartimaeus reveals not just like this separate order of things, um, but actually reveals the heart of the gospel. It reveals the heart of the way that Jesus is bringing salvation. We see that Jesus fulfilling the, promise, the promises to Israel of liberation in Jubilee, the promises that the prophet Isaiah talked about of a time was going to come when, when uh, the Messiah was going to uh, um, free the enslaved and bring sight to the blind. This is what Jesus is saying at the beginning of, of Luke's gospel when he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll and he says, I have come to fulfill this year of Jubilee, this liberation, this salvation in which the blind will see. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus is announcing what is part and parcel to his mission that the blind will see. And in fact, this is why people have begun to suspect that he's the Messiah in the first place. It's because he's living out this mission in which salvation is coming among those who are, are very aware of their creaturely dependence. And we see that Jesus saves. Jesus rescues Humanity from bondage to the powers of sin and death that keeps us distanced from God and one another. He saves. He saves not abstracted from humanity, not by just declaring something from a distance, not abstracted from humanity, or by taking up the power and privilege of the world, which is what those around him were thinking was going to happen. He saves not by taking up that power and privilege and popularity in the world's terms, but Jesus saves by joining humanity in the dust. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians when, when he says that God chose the insignificant things of the world to put to shame the significant things that are cheap and false and distorted substitutes for communion. Friends, this is good news. This is good news for Bartimaeus. It's good news for us because, among other things, it means that there is no earning. You tracking with me? There's no earning. 
If the gospel is good news for Bartimaeus, it means that there is no earning. All of us, all of us share in the need for the gratuitous gift of God's life. His self-offering. And it also means that we have no advantage. We have no advantage to the things that matter most. To the kind of life that, that is the abundant kind of life that Jesus articulates. We have no advantage to those things just because we're with the right crowd. Or we're on the right side. Or we're seen in the right amount or by the right people. We have no advantage. The gospel is good news for people like Bartimaeus and good news for us. We see here in verse 47 that the crowds didn't get this. And even the disciples didn't get this. By this point, Jesus is journeying up to Jerusalem. And it's not just his disciples that have gathered around him, but also a crowd, the text says. And the crowds thought that Bart was a problem. They tried to silence him when he cried out. Shaped by celebrity and popularity. Again, the whole uh, Instagram likes is not a new problem, right? This is something that this crowd struggled with too. Shaped by celebrity and popularity, needing to win. They didn't see a person. When they encountered Bartimaeus, they didn't see a person. They saw a problem. But Jesus was not distracted by the buzz of good feelings for being noticed. Jesus dignifies, humanizes, and heals Bartimaeus. We see that in verse 47, um, he does this after Bartimaeus cries out, Son of God, have mercy on me. And, and in addition to the fact that, that the, good news is pe- the gospel is good news for people like Bartimaeus, we also see that Bartimaeus is an example for what it means for us to attach our lives to Christ both in his posture and also in this cry of have mercy on me. What Bartimaeus does with his body is what faith looks like. What the faith of a disciple looks like. Bartimaeus is uncalculated. He's uncaring in his approach. He throws off his tunic. I mean, imagine this. Like, I don't even know how he knew where he was running or how well his legs worked. But he throws off his cloak, his one possession probably, and, and goes breakneck for Jesus. He's uncalculated in his approach. He is poor. He has nothing to lose and everything to gain. Bartimaeus has nothing to lose and everything to gain in his approach. We should see ourselves in Bartimaeus. We should see ourselves in Bartimaeus. And we end up dismissing and overlooking people like Bartimaeus, not just because we don't have all the right thoughts about social justice or whatever. Like, we miss people like Bartimaeus because we miss that our humanity is bound up in the dust with his. Our humanity is bound up in the dust with Bartimaeus. We are there with him, and Jesus is meeting us there with him. The kingdom of God, salvation, new creation, is bursting forth from the dust. Jesus joins humanity in the dust. This is where the kingdom of God is breaking forth. And so attaching our lives to Jesus' life means the reorientation of, of how we think our lives have meaning. Bartimaeus helps us do this because we should see ourselves in Bartimaeus. And so get this too about Bartimaeus' cry of, have mercy on me. Bart is not just asking to get better. 
He is. Right? He is. These things can't be pulled apart. He's not just asking to get better. Bartimaeus is entrusting his body to the possibility of a redemption that he cannot see. Bartimaeus is entrusting his body to the possibility of a redemption that he cannot see. Part of what it means for us to be Jesus' disciples is that we are a hopeful people. And what it means to be a hopeful people is to entrust our bodies to a redemption that we cannot yet see. And as we do this, we have new eyes, new vision that's shaped not by the cynicism of the world, but by the kingdom of God that says that we can entrust our body to redemption that we cannot see. This is what it means to be Jesus' people, that we have that kind of vision. This is why we can do things like lament, like we did last week. To take a serious look and an honest look at our, at our hurt and pain and shame, we can do this because we are entrusting our body to the hope of a redemption that we cannot see and hope that even though we lay ourselves out there, that God's kingdom is coming, that his will is being done, and that hope and new life are coming. And, and as we do this, as we attach our lives to Jesus, our vision is reshaped in this way so that we see ourselves differently, we see the world, and we see others differently. So this posture of, of crying out, have mercy on me, is not just about, about uh, getting healed, it's not just about getting better, it's not just about having our guilt relieved. It's about offering ourselves, have mercy on me. It's about walking into any scenario that we find ourselves in and offering ourselves to the possibility of a redemption that we cannot see, and, the, and the, the powers or the stories or whatever else that's around us, or the politics or whatever, that isn't quite clear yet, but that we know is promised and is breaking in in Jesus. Among other things, it means that we, when we come in with the posture of Christ have mercy on me, it means that we're not in charge, either of our own redemption or the redemption of others. We're just coming in and and saying, Christ, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. It's not a posture of being in charge. It's just a posture of openness, of openness to the possibility of a redemption that we cannot see. And so we walk into our tests, into hard conversations, into doctor's appointments, into whatever else that we're walking into, and we say, Christ, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us looking for Christ at work, expecting his healing word, expecting his healing touch. Christ the King, in a world desperate to be seen, Christ calls us out of our fear of insignificance. Christ has made another way. Christ has made another way beyond these vicious cycles of look at me. Our identity does not, we have an identity that does not depend on popularity. We have the ability to engage hard things in our lives and hard things in the lives of those around us without needing a certain kind of social significance or a social status. And this all comes, friends, this all comes not by trying harder, but from a, being able to embrace the reality that God sees us, that Christ sees us and joins us in the dust, that we are seen. We, there is a possibility of communion that's there for us. We can be at home in communion, in being seen by God. I owe this imagery to a conversation I had with Amber 
uh, this week about being at home in communion. And the image is, is of uh, when, when, like, say that it's like Thanksgiving or something, and you've got all this family over. And you can just, uh, you can just stop, and you can, you can listen, and you can feel, and you can smell, and you can hear just communion happening around you. And there's this freedom. This, like, ha, ah, I'm safe. Of being at home in communion that just frees you to, to be and to be present and to love. It's, it's being at home in being seen by God and in communion that, that liberates us, that frees us from all the junk, all the, all the politics, all the, all the competition, all the jealousy, all the whatever that we see in our world. This is now being seen and loved by God in the dust. This is how we enter our relationships. This is how we enter our schools. This is how we enter politics. We enter as a hopeful people, entrusting our body to Christ's redemption with a new vision shaped by the kingdom of God that is not yet seen by the world. A confession, another confession. I'll end with this, another confession. Uh, Sometimes I get uh, anxious and afraid about whether or not um, our congregation is seen. About uh, whether or not we have um, social significance in the city. Whether or not we're well-known enough. And when I start to do that, when I start, and, I'm, and in that moment, like I'm pivoting out of like all kinds of fear of insignificance, all kinds of fear of of not being special, of not being able to engage without the right kind of popularity. I'm pivoting out of all that. And when I do that, it messes with, my, uh, with, with how I see the world. And so I engage people differently. I engage different people when I'm pivoting out of that fear of insignificance. Like my whole line of thinking goes a different direction. But Christ is, is calling me, he's calling us into a different kind of identity even as a community here in, Faith, in Fayetteville. He's calling us into an identity in which we are so at home in communion that we are able to cry out, whether we're alone or whether we're together or whether we're with others, we are able to cry out, Christ, have mercy on us. And then we're able to have a different vision where because we see God with us in the dust, we can see and be with others in the dust. This week I was reminded of a quote from... Uh, the uh, now late uh, Eugene Peterson, he said this. He said, our identity is necessarily minority. He said, we need a minority people working from the margins because that minority people, that insignificant people working from the margins has the best chance of being a community capable of penetrating the non-community the mob, the depersonalized, function-defined crowd that is the sociological norm in America. Christ the King, may we, because we are seen by the God who joins us in the dust, may we be that kind of community. So I invite you to respond today.